Let's pray together. Lord, we have uh, corporately sung some very strong words this morning. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Lord, I pray that as we gather in this place, at least weekly, that you do not find us half-hearted in our worship. I pray that we would be well aware of the weight of the words that we have sung this morning. Not just aware of the content of a song, but aware of who we are in the presence of. That we sit here this morning in the presence of a very mighty, powerful, abundantly wonderful God. Lord, it is a privilege that we get to gather this morning. And it's all for you and for your glory. We submit to your word this morning, and I pray that you would allow it to be clearly um, communicated. Lord, I pray for Tom Witt this morning, pastor at uh, Prairie Valley Baptist. I pray that their worship is, the, is just the same this morning that it is wholehearted, that they're enjoying you this morning. I pray for his marriage. I pray for his kids. I pray that that is a place where your glory is put on display. I pray that you would help them to continue to persevere and move forward and press on in ministry, even with all the ups and downs that exist within ministry. Lord, we also want to pray for the Cardwells this morning as... Uh, Mike is mourning the loss of his uh, younger brother, and as their uh, family is mourning the loss of uh, an uncle and all the other relatives, Lord, um, as they gather, I pray that it's about you and your glory and, and a work that you're doing, and I pray that you would be their peace that exceeds understanding in a hard season. Lord, this morning as we climb into the Exodus story, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts, just make things clear to us. Um, let us see this as our story. Lord, you are very good, and we thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up to Exodus 16, please. We're glad you're here this morning. If you're a visitor, we welcome you. If you're not a visitor, we also welcome you. Um, we generally go through, um, just verse by verse, uh, Ben, who is the, the guy who more regular, the elder who more regularly preaches is out of town this week, and, and he's been preaching through John for the last two and a half decades. We're actually going to be um, in Exodus uh, for the next three weeks, and um, I just want us to dive in. As I read this aloud, um, and I'll say this again as we go through the, um, through the uh, sermon. Can you turn these lights on right here, please? I'm preaching out of a Bible with smaller text, and in this darkness, I see how small it really is. Those particular, yes. Wow, that's pretty bright. Um, but as we do this, I encourage you to climb into the story and, and import your senses and consider that this is not a story about another people a long time ago. This is our story. And, um, and it's important that we read it like that. So Exodus 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It's quite the accusation. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare uh, what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Thankful for that clarification statement. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. All you can eat manna right here. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning. So they laid it aside till the morning and Moses, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Bummer. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, I picture frosted flakes when I see that. Verse 32, Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. 40 years. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Verse 36. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. In case you're wondering what an omer was, it's the tenth part of an ephah. It's an important detail. Don't miss it. <clears throat> My hope for our time in Exodus is this, is that we would see God's provision, that we would see God's infinite goodness, that we would see God's tender kindness, this abundant provision, that we would not just learn about what he did, but that we would enjoy him this morning. I'm hoping that as we gather here, a lot of us in different places, that we would really enjoy the Lord this morning. In this, I also hope that we would see those tendencies that each of us have that could easily keep us from savoring God. He's not only our Lord and our Savior, He is also our treasure. Look back at verse 1. Verse 1, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Some of us are really familiar with the Exodus story. Some of us may be sitting here thinking, I've never heard this story in my life. We all need to know this is our story. At this point, the people of God, who God has called out and chosen to be His for His glory, are about two and a half months into the Exodus. Two and a half months since that time when they left Egypt. This book of the Exodus is all about God fulfilling His promises. For example... When Jacob and his descendants entered Egypt about two centuries previous, there were about 70 of them. 70. 
There are about four generations. You have Abraham, Isaac, um, uh, Jacob, Joseph, and at the end of Genesis, Joseph passes. Uh, many of them moved to Egypt, particularly to the land of Goshen. And there's about 70. What was God's promise to Abraham? You'll be fruitful. I will make you, look at the stars. I'll make you as numerous as the stars. Look at the sand on the seashore. I'll make you as numerous as the sand. So two centuries previous, there were about 70 of them. Upon the Exodus, there were about 600,000 men. Likely over a million people when you include women and children. That number's in Exodus 12, 37, if you want to look at it. This could be the very definition of being fruitful and increasing greatly from 70 to 600,000 men. Our story as we sit here today is the story of a people. The salvation story of your faith started centuries ago. The party didn't begin when you got here. You're joining the program already in progress. The story of our faith was never intended to be individualized, as if your story of your faith is very different than this person over here's story of their faith. They all have many, many similarities. It's impossible for us to rightly understand the details of our faith without understanding the law of Moses, the, five, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament particularly. Without them, without understanding these books, and this is why we're going to kind of have an oversight survey, in a sense, over these next three weeks of the book of Exodus, without them, we lack insight into the covenant and the, the true Israel. Why would we care about the true Israel? We cannot understand the importance of the blood of Christ without them. Without it, the word sacrifice carries very little significance. Interestingly, upon return from the Babylonian exile, at our family summer clubs out at Grand Park, we've been going through the Babylonian exile with our kids. And um, interestingly, one of the things that we saw in Ezra 7 is that Ezra was appointed and deemed able to reestablish the temple of God because he knew the law of Moses, he did and obeyed the law of Moses, and he taught it. He knew it, he lived it, and he taught it. And that was what actually equipped him much later to be able to go back and reestablish what it was that God wanted for his people. He knew the law of Moses, he obeyed it, and he taught it, and he knew his story of God's people. So as we take in the sweep of this detailed narrative, there's a lot of details. As we go through the book of Exodus, there is, it's like God says, this is what I want done, and then they do what God wanted done, and they include every single word that God said. It's maddening when you're reading through it. You're like, why couldn't they just say, and they did what God did? But the details are important. That's why they're included. This is entirely breathed out by God. But as we read through the sweep of the detailed narrative, we're overwhelmed by God's unshakable greatness. We consider in the Old Testament the most dominant, powerful nations and kingdoms of the time. Consider these most powerful kingdoms that Israel would, would be very nervous, quake, shake in their, in their presence. The most dominant, powerful nations, mainly uh, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, today have been brought to nothing. You're not likely to pick up the newspaper tomorrow and see that the king of Babylon has made a decision with global impact. Or that the Pharaoh is intending an important event. The names of these once powerful yet godless nations have been brought to nothing. While the kingdom of God grows in strength and scope every moment of every day. See that. The biggest threat to the kingdom of God at this point was Egypt. Not so much today. This is our story. Climb into it. Import your senses. What does it sound like? What are your surroundings? What does it smell like? What are your neighbors experiencing that you're experiencing as you're going through the wilderness? Israel's celebration in these chapters is our celebration and their provision is our provision. I think we also see that their shortcomings are our shortcomings. But most importantly, we will see that their God is our God, the one true God, and he's really, really good. So in verse 1, we can trace their footsteps back. We're starting out, they set out from Elam. Well, what happened before that? We can trace their footsteps back and see that our Israelite brethren have had a pretty crazy year. While the Egyptians were plagued and plundered, make this your story, we found ourselves protected and abundantly provided for in the land of Goshen where Uncle Joseph set us up to stay. After a long season of hard, cruel, and seemingly endless slavery, our family sat at our table for a Passover feast. The blood on our doorposts guarded us from being visited by the destroyer while we heard a great cry throughout all of Egypt as all their firstborn dropped dead. Under the leadership of Moses and Aaron, we were led out of Egypt, guarded and guided by pillars of cloud and fire, 
God showed us great mercy in, in that when we set out, he didn't make us go through the land of the Philistines because there was a lot of war there and that would have really freaked us out. So he let us go around it, showed us real mercy there. We were led through the Red Sea on dry ground as we could hear the war cry of a very angry and a very equipped Egyptian army behind us who decided they wanted to renegotiate the terms of our release. They were mad. We had their gold and silver and bronze. But God delivered us. The next morning, we saw dead Egyptians on the seashore after Pharaoh's army was swallowed up by the very Red Sea that we walked through on dry ground. We moved forward and we became thirsty. The only water at our disposal was bitter, but God didn't just make it unbitter or bearable. He made it sweet. He's so merciful. He's so full of grace. Then we set out from Elam, which is where we find ourselves in Exodus 16. We set out from Elam. Elam was a desert oasis with 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Sounds nice, doesn't it? The kind of place where we would probably save up our money to go on vacation. 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. I was thinking about what it must have been like to leave this place and move into the wilderness of sin. What must it have been like for us to leave Elam with the 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and move to the wilderness of sin? If any of you have been to one of those uh, really plush, all-inclusive resorts in Mexico, you probably know what I'm talking about. Where you go, you get there and you get something to drink. Non-alcoholic, of course. And then you go... And you sit in the shade all day long until you get thirsty again and go get another drink. Jump in the pool, and then you get back to that hard work of sitting in the shade all day long. Where you return to your room and someone has magically turned all of your towels into cute little animals <laughs> that hold chocolate treats. Where everything seems to be just at your fingertips. And then you have to leave. Only to wonder, where did all the exotic animals and and tropical foliage go? Where did all this dirt and concrete and graffiti come from? And you're now concerned if you'll actually arrive back at the airport alive in spite of your insane cab driver. Why would they ever leave Elam? Why would Israel ever leave Elam? The reason that Israel did not settle in Elam is that God had something much greater in store for them. God had something much greater in store for them than Elam, even with its 12 springs of water and its 70 palm trees. Sometimes we need to be reminded of this when we begin to use uh, promised land lingo on things that are temporal and fleeting. We need to be reminded of this when we use promised land lingo on things that are temporal and fleeting. Like, that if, I finally, if we can just get that house or that car or whatever other possession, then we will be happy. We will have arrived where we want to be in life. Maybe it's a relationship. Once I get into that relationship I will finally be happy. No longer will I complain for we will have arrived at the place we were meant to be. Maybe it's once I get out of this relationship, I will be happy. But it's sad when we go to that place. These temporal things serve the purpose of pointing to the worth of the one who we will dwell with forever. That's what these temporal things are. Elam, Elam was great. But it serves the purpose of pointing to the, the, the absolute unending worth of the one who we will dwell with forever. The springs of water and the palm trees don't compare. Israel is created for something far greater than Elam. We're two and a half months into the Exodus and every speaking person could give a first-hand account of God's abundant goodness. To many of them, uh, this is not just a story that they have been told, but a reality that they have experienced. The pillar, the cloud, the deliverance. Look at verse 2. I hope you're overwhelmed right now at how good God is. He's really, really good. And look at verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Things go south pretty quickly, don't they? Things go south very quickly. The whole congregation grumbled. You know, if you have a family and you have like a few kids, and everyone's grumbling, it's almost maddening in the house. Imagine like a million people grumbling. What must that have been like? How miserable must that have been for Aaron and Moses? More importantly, what does that sound like in the ear of our Lord? A million delivered, blessed, provided for people grumbling. The whole congregation, not just a couple of them, 
From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's safe to assume that the hearts of the Israelites are discontent. This is not just a matter of saying the wrong things. Their hearts are not in a good place. This is a worship issue, and the result is grumbling. I want to be careful here. I want to be careful because as we see Israel grumbling, I don't want to just flip the Israelite goofball switch, where I just start referring to Israel as a bunch of uninformed morons who have no common sense whatsoever, generally more stupid than the rest of the population, unable to comprehend anything, just fools. We need to consider this part of our story with a really sober mind. I'm encouraging you as you hear what we're going into to, to, to engage it with a very sober mind. A sober mind is in touch with reality. Reality remains undistorted in the sober mind. And our reality is that our God is exceedingly and overwhelmingly good. That's your reality. When you want to approach something in a sober-minded manner, that's really important not to toss out the window. Our God is exceedingly and overwhelmingly good. At creation, he was exceedingly and overwhelmingly good. At the, at the point of the flood, where not even a good intention could be found in anyone in the entire planet, our God was exceedingly and overwhelmingly good. At the Exodus, exceedingly and overwhelmingly good. And today, we sit here with a very real God who is very present and exceedingly and overwhelmingly good. The other reality for our Israelite brethren in Exodus 16 is that our Israelite brothers and sisters are in some dire circumstances. That's why I don't want to just start talking about them like they're goofballs and they need to just just buck up and don't worry. They're in some dire circumstances. See, to minimize the situation diminishes the need for a big God. Israel needs a really big, mighty, strong God who can do something that no one else on the planet can do. So to diminish the situation diminishes the need for a really big, mighty, and strong God. They're facing hunger. They haven't just missed a meal or two and they're upset. Their concern is that there does not seem to be food enough for hundreds of thousands of people. And their concern is valid. God doesn't just show them a bunch of food that they were overlooking. There's no food. This is one of those problems that is always heightened with the number of people involved. In college, if I ran out of money or food, it really wasn't all that big a deal. I could survive three days on a good hot pocket. But when you have women and children involved, and you're in a foreign land with no real allies, even though they've got all the gold from Egypt and the silver, all these riches, they don't have any allies, there's no connections for food, and there's a lot of them. The case is very different. They had great reason to be concerned. However, they had no reason at all to be unthankful and godless. See the difference. They had really good reason to be concerned at the situation. It looks um, concerning, but they have zero reason at all to be unthankful and godless. Richard Baxter wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Outside of the Bible, uh, for me personally, it's probably one of the most influential books I've read that may reveal more about me than I intended to reveal publicly. Uh, but it is, it is very, uh, very good as far as explaining what Christian contentment is and how we are so prone to being discontent, to grumbling. Baxter says, Do you not account this folly in your children? You give them some food and they're not contented. Perhaps they say it's not enough and they cry for more. And if you do not immediately give your children more, they will throw away what they have. You know, when you're a kid, you give them some food and they want more and you don't give it to them so they take what they have and throw it on the ground? That makes a lot of sense, right? Though you account it folly in your children, yet you deal thus with God. God gives you many mercies. But you see others who have more mercies than you and you therefore cry out for more. But God does not give you what you want and because of that you throw away what you have. Is this not folly in your hearts? It is unthankfulness. By all of your discontent, you cannot help yourselves. And you cannot get anything by it. Each of us sit here this morning blessed abundantly. Like you may have had the worst week you've ever had in your life. You sit here this morning blessed abundantly. We woke with a borrowed breath to mercies that were new this morning. We hold in our hands an account breathed out by God that communicates clearly the unending worth of our Savior. 
He wants us to understand the unending worth of our Savior. Yet maybe even this morning, many of us have cried out in unthankful discontent. Maybe even this morning, as you were getting the family ready or as you were driving here, you cried out in unthankful discontent. Or maybe some of us have held it in and we put our smiles on and no one knows how discontent we are inwardly. Baxter goes on to speak of this inward discontentment that is never made known because we're too busy smiling and shaking hands. He says, yet inwardly they are bursting with discontent, notwithstanding their outward silence. God hears the peevish, fretful language of their souls. What does God hear in your soul this morning? Thankfulness, contentment, blown away by grace and mercy? Or is it just a facade on the outside where inwardly we're, we're really, really grumbling? He actually compares it to a, a neat leather shoe where on the outside it is shiny and nice, but on the inside it pinches the flesh. Both forms of discontentment are not good. I wish that I could speak to you about God's goodness without having to remind you of our depravity. I really wish that I could speak to you of God's goodness without having to remind you of our depravity. It'd be a lot easier. Everyone would leave here with much bigger smiles. I wish as a pastor that it was easier and I could just give an account of the life and peace part of the covenant without having to trouble you with the fear and awe part of the covenant. But the covenant is one of life and peace and fear and awe. And that's where it finds its balance. We're not called to counterbalance it or to try and throw something more to make up for something that was less. Life and peace and fear and awe. But God's covenant with us is, is one of life and peace and fear and all. And, and it's against the backdrop of our really great need. We are a needy people. We don't gather here with our junk all figured out. We are very needy and we need the Lord desperately every moment of every day. And it's against that, that backdrop and it's against the backdrop of our total depravity that we marvel at the extraordinary beauty of God's unsearchable greatness. In Exodus, look at how far Israel has, or yeah, look at how far Israel has sunk. What do they accuse Moses and Aaron of? You guys didn't do that good of a job. No, murder. That's what they accuse them of. Murder. From the lips of Moses and Aaron, Israel has received some of the greatest news they have ever heard. We're going to the promised land. Sweet. Thank you, Moses and Aaron, for saying that. That's good news. By Moses and Aaron's hands at God's will, they were led out of captivity, not only freed, but abundantly provided for. And it's Moses and Aaron who the whole congregation accuses of being not vessels of mercy who delivered them and led them obediently, but murderers who aimed to end them. This should astonish us. You should be sitting there saying, what? Israel said what to Moses and Aaron? I cannot believe that. It should astonish us. How could so many think so wrongly? It's a sad thing when our conditions change for the worse and we begin to assume the worst about each other, even our leadership. It can happen in your homes. Like some of you may have experienced where you're in a home where maybe the conditions change for, for what seems to be the worse. Salary goes down. Someone loses a job. You're going to have to move and get a smaller house. Maybe it's you're going to have to sell a possession. Maybe it's a car. Maybe one car family for a while. And as those stresses pile on, you begin to see that members of the house, maybe mom and dad start it, and they're assuming the worst about each other. What do you mean by that? Well, I didn't mean anything by that. Maybe it's the children begin to assume the worst about each other. Maybe the children assume the worst about their parents. Or the parents assume the worst about children. When things go wrong, that's kind of our default mode. We assume the worst of each other. That's not what we're designed to do. We trust our Lord. And we move forward and we trust each other as well in that process. It happens in business where a business begins to go south and funds are, are tight and, and cash flow is kind of out the window. And all of a sudden you see associates and partners begin to assume the worst about each other and they become divided. That's what's happening here with Israel. And look at verses 4 through 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God's going to rain down bread from heaven. So they've grumbled. 
and God's raining down bread from heaven. You may be thinking, that's not fair. They don't deserve that. That's not fair. What did they do to deserve bread from heaven? They're grumbling against God, to which I would say you're exactly right. And you have successfully defined grace and mercy. Israel did not receive the wrath of God that they deserved. That's called mercy. He didn't just say, oh, you're going to complain. He didn't do that. Rather, they received grace in the form of bread from heaven. But it doesn't end there. This is coming in the form, it's coming from the hand of God in the form of a test. Why do we test things? We test things to find a particular result. You can test the content of pool water to see what kind of chlorine levels are there. You test a child in school to see what their comprehension is and how they're doing academically. We test to find a particular result. God is giving them this blessing in the form of a test. God aims to see if they will walk in the law that he's going to give them four chapters later. Remember when Sinai quakes and the finger of God writes on the tablets the law, how his children will live from here on out? He's not tempting them to sin. I want to make sure we understand that. It's coming in the form of a test, but he's not tempting them to sin. He's providing for them and testing them that they may grow in their faith and dependence upon him, that they would not easily be shaken. The rules are gather a day's portion every day. Which you can hear God begging the question, I am God, will you trust me for tomorrow's bread? Do you trust that I can provide for you tomorrow? Who do you view as your family's provider? Dad or God? On the sixth day, the second rule, on the sixth day, God will provide twice as much. So gather twice as much that you may observe the Sabbath rest. We're going to talk more about the Sabbath rest next week and see how God is so good to provide rest for his people. But right now you may be thinking, wait a minute, my boss doesn't pay me twice as much on Friday to get through the weekend. But the principles remain. Will you trust God's design? Do you trust that you need rest? And do you trust that six days of work is enough for seven days provision when God is involved? Verses 7 through 8. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And, and Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. It's made clear that though Israel directs their complaints to Moses and Aaron, their grumbling is actually against God. It is really, really dangerous, really dangerous ground for you to go to God and tell him what a sorry job he's doing. Some of you may have no problem with that. You may do it every day. But it's really dangerous ground to go to God and tell him what a sorry job he is doing. Setting him straight like you would an unruly child or a lackluster employee. But many of us, though we may not be willing to get on our knees and say, God, you stunk at what you did today. We may not be willing to do that. But many of us feel quite comfortable vexing and complaining discontentedly to our friends, co-workers, family, spouse, children, voicing how undeserving we are of our current circumstances and conditions. Now, I want to make a very sober transition here. Many of you are not just being silly and childish if you have something that is plaguing you, concerning you. Some sitting in this room right now have experienced pain so deep that it cannot be explained it can only be experienced. Some of you sitting in this room right now have experienced loss so great that you actually feel like a part of you is missing. But like Israel needed to be reminded, I urge you, whatever it is, not to lose sight of the certifiable fact that our God is a gentle shepherd who knows our deepest needs before we voice them, and who speaks tenderly to Jerusalem. Do not speak ill of him to his face or to the face of another. He gives power to the faint, and he increases and renews our strength. Israel should have been going to God. They didn't. They weren't even mindful of him. All they were mindful of was their current conditions. He gives power to the faint, and he renews our strength 
So the question is, do you treasure him? Do you treasure God? If you really consider your situation with a sober mind, do you still have a reason to grumble against God? If you're on the receiving end of the grumbling, maybe you're one of those coworkers or family members or friends or spouses who's on the receiving end of someone who's explaining how horrible of a job God's doing with their life. It may do you well to take your lead from Moses and Aaron and remind your brother or sister who their grumbling is really against. Yes, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Don't be a jerk. Like, take the common sense into this and don't be a jerk. Don't be a person who just has to tune up everybody all the time. Quit your crying. That's not cool. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. But when weeping turns into grumbling, ask your brother or sister, do you really wish to communicate to God that his provision cannot please you? Is that what you're wanting to communicate? Are you wanting to tell God that what he's done for you will not please you? That Christ is not enough? For an individual to even have a brother or sister to weep with is a blessing in itself. Look at verse 9 through 16. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Like at this point, I'm freaking out. He heard our grumbling. Uh Uh-oh. We saw what he did to Egypt. Uh Uh-oh. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. What's about to happen is happening by God. He's made his presence evident. We are a people who need to have a continual awareness of God's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing. Finest frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, Yes! No. They said, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. We shall each take an omer. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. So God did as he said he would do. Like he always does, part of the reason he's so abundantly good. You can trust him, I promise. You can trust the Lord. This whole account, there's not one promise he didn't follow through on. There's not one point where, where you see him just take a nap and totally forsake his people. He's trustworthy. He did as he said. The people grumbled against God, and God mercifully provides quail. And then the next morning, when their bellies are still full from meat, manna, the spiritual, where we see in other parts of Scripture, spiritual food of angels, divine. And there sits before Israel a divine blessing from the hand of God covering the ground. This is a beautiful moment. You can almost see the tired and hungry faces smile. As the sunlight peeks through the trees until someone very eloquently asks, what is it? What is it? Is that, what, what is that on the ground? Jelsea was on What is that? I wish we had a recording of Moses' answer to capture his tone. It's such a short answer, but I wish he would have been like, seriously? Pull your head out. God, God just said what it was going to be. Stop it. Eat. I wish we could have captured his tone, but at the very least... We see that he is there to tell them, this is God's blessing for you. Take and eat. This is God's blessing for you. Take and eat. Sometimes we need this reminder. Often we are so frustrated by our circumstances that we don't see the very blessings that sit before us. We have all experienced this. We're so frustrated at the junk that we miss out on the blessings that are sitting right in front of us. If Moses hadn't told them that it was bread for the Lord, I was thinking they may very well have gone hungry. He said in the presence of blessings all over the ground. And they may have gone hungry had Moses not said, that's manna. It tastes like honey. Give it a shot. If you engage someone who has lost sight of their blessings, the reminder might be, hey man, I know 
that your salary has decreased and you lost some of your benefits. But didn't you drive here, like in a car, with your healthy family who fears the Lord? Yeah, it's a harder season, but God's abundantly good. The reminder might be, I know you lost your job and you're dead broke and you don't even have a dime. But you're a member of a church. You're a member of a church and you and your family will not be sleeping outside tonight. God's blessings are abundant. Do you know anyone who's died from exposure to the elements around here? You see people dying of starvation? You're going to be okay. You're a member of a church. We're going to take care of you. What's mine is yours. We have everything in common. God never leaves us or forsakes us. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Look at verses 17 through 18. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. They had a big family. They gathered more omers of manna. They had a small family. They gathered less omers of manna. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. No one had anything left over, and no one was lacking, but everybody's bellies were full. That's how good our God is. A million people on a morning where there was no food. Here you go. Divine blessing from my hand for 40 years. This wasn't a one-time occurrence. For 40 years, this was the case. For 40 years, every morning, they woke up to the sweet grace and mercy. They ate a breakfast that reminded them of God's presence and provision every morning. Turn over to Numbers 11. Numbers chapter 11 gives us an account of what happens over the next few seasons. In Numbers 11, they have moved from the wilderness of sin to Sinai. They experience Sinai quaking and the glory of the Lord being present, coming down on the mountain, the cloud. The law was given to Moses. He has come down. His face is shining. They're being fools dancing around a golden calf. Mr. Eloquent Aaron was reprimanded by Moses. What happened? And this eloquent, eloquent grown man said, uh, through the golden fire, and it came out like this calf. He was the one who was chosen because he was eloquent. And that was his answer. Uh, the, I don't know. I just put the gold in. That's what happened. <laughs> then they're all dancing around like fools. And, and Moses is up on the mountaintop and being engaged by the Lord with the truth that his people will live by. And he goes down. And it is a horrible scene. But now they've moved on from Sinai. And they're moving forward. They have the law. They have these promises. They know how they're supposed to live now. Moses' face is still shiny because of being in the presence of God. He's wearing a veil so it doesn't freak everybody out. And they moved on. And in Numbers 11, they have moved on from Sinai. And it says this, verse 1, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Their misfortunes were not listed. It wasn't like, oh, because I saw that and I went back and read chapter 10. I'm thinking, oh, what, what happened? What, 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 did they, what did they run into? Okay, God delivered them. God didn't kill them all. Their bellies are still full. They still had manna that morning. What are their misfortunes? They may not be clear to us, but they were very clear to them. They complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. This is where we get the other part of the covenant. We have life and peace, a gentle shepherd, and fear and awe. A perfectly just and angry Lord. When the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. Can you imagine? God's so angry, stuff's just catching on fire on the outlying parts of the camp. Imagine that. Consider it. So the name of that place was called Tibera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them, it's a good word, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. There was a group among them that was not content, wanted to raise some trouble, and they had a strong craving. Many times our discontentment comes from our strong craving that we have towards something other than God. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, they're saying it again, oh 
that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Really? It cost nothing? Is that the whole story? They cost nothing. We could just frolic around and eat our free fish. Really, that was the case. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, they had horrible breath, likely. And in verse 6, but now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Blech. That's where they're at. Are they in a good place, spiritually sound, moving forward in faith? No, they're in a bad place again. Hadn't even been that long. They've experienced more of God's amazing, unspeakable greatness. And they're sitting here, all we have to look at is this manna. Rather than growing in awe and wonder by such a display of divine power, that every day when they get up out of bed, at the exact same moment, even through the changing of the seasons when the conditions are totally different from one day to the next, that God remained faithful and mighty. Rather than the increased awe and wonder, like you didn't hear him, man, 20 years God's been providing for us. Isn't he good? That's not what you hear. Rather than the increased awe and wonder, they grew cold to it. They saw it as commonplace. We can do that with grace so easily. God is putting his grace and his goodness on display in every area of our lives. So much of every moment of every day, we all experience it daily, hourly, minutely, a lot. And they saw it as commonplace. What happened was their fleshly cravings led them back to thoughts of Egypt. Their fleshly cravings led them back to thoughts of Egypt. But in reality, they hated Egypt. They didn't like Egypt, but because of their fleshly cravings, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, because of their fleshly cravings, they hated Egypt. But now, they love Egypt. They won't go back. And in Egypt, they desired to be closer to God and each other. And the point that we can take from this is that meat pots in Egypt do not compare to the sweet manna in the presence of God with a redeemed and like-minded people. It does not compare Our freedom in Christ is something that we should cherish daily, no matter our circumstances. We are blessed because our God is exceedingly and overwhelmingly good. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. I encourage you to turn to John 6. As you're turning to John 6, the band will make their way up here, but don't pay any attention to him because it makes him self-conscious. John 6. In John 6, what we're seeing is um, Jesus has fed the 5,000. He's walked across the lake on the water to Capernaum, and the crowd, still hungry, gets in their boats to go and find him. Jesus is in a really similar place to what we've been considering in the Exodus this morning. See, what happened with the people in the Exodus is that their problem was a worship problem, but it was making itself known in their hunger. Their issue was worship. But it was making itself known in their hunger. For us, it can be in our finances, in our marriages, in our relationships, where the problem is a, is a vertical problem with the Lord, and it's making itself known here in a number of different ways. But the issue is really worship. There was no point where Israel could actually say, I'm square with God, I just want to go back to Egypt. They couldn't truthfully say that. Israel could never say, I'm square with the Lord and I'm fine. I just want to go back to Egypt. Egypt is great. That means they're not square with the Lord. That is the definition of grumbling. We can't miss that this morning. In John 6, we find Jesus in a similar place. He's fed the 5,000. He's walked across the lake on the water to Capernaum. And the crowd, still hungry, gets in their boats to go and find him. He's surrounded by a large crowd of people who have tasted of the blessing and now seek nothing more than to fill their bellies. 
Because when he told them what they had to do, a lot of them jetted. So they tasted the blessing, and now they seek nothing more than to fill their bellies. They're guilty of going to God for something other than God. Do, do we do that? Do we go to God for something other than God? Do we use him as a means to something else that will define ourselves? Thank you very much. I know what I want. I know my desires. God, make it happen. They're going to God for something other than God, going to Jesus for something other than Jesus. And in verse 26, Jesus answers them. Look at verse 26 in chapter 6. Jump into this narrative as well. It's your story. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus corrects them. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. Notice he says, he's, he wants them to know this is their story. He says, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. But my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. They're saying, hook us up with something tangible. It's very spiritual what you're saying, but put it in my hand. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Does your mind even go to that last day? Will you be raised up by the one who is the true bread of life? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled. Isn't that familiar? They grumbled. I'm Jesus. You can't take my life. My blood will be shed for your sin. My righteousness will be counted as yours. That's an unbelievable blessing. And they grumbled. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? I know your mom. I know your dad. Don't mess with me. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. He still is not big on grumbling. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. That manna thing in the wilderness of sin was really important because now you can know that I, Jesus, am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's a hard teaching. The Jews, hearing a hard teaching, then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Today, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we partake of the bread, we celebrate life. We celebrate and remember the God of provision who in Christ feeds us with the eternal bread of life.
I encourage you this morning not to go to Jesus for something other than Jesus. Take and eat. Verses 54 through 57 of John 6. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, is true food, and my blood is true drink. Notice he's pointing to the trueness of it. In opposition to the false, fleshly, strong cravings we may have. My flesh is true blood, true food. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. As we drink this cup, we remember the blood of Christ. Because of Christ's sacrifice, his righteousness is counted as our righteousness. It's not just a matter of he showed us a way to live righteously. His righteousness is counted as our righteousness. An awareness of this reality keeps our eyes focused on him and our hearts directed toward him, no matter how our circumstances may change. Take and drink. Lord, what we have just remembered, what we have just taken part in, this sacred thing, it's not only symbolic, is all by the work of your mighty hand that you would draw people out from the world for your glory. I pray that we would be continually mindful of that no matter our circumstances and that we would not in hard times fail to remember who you are and what you've done and what you've proven again and again and again. Lord, I pray that the remainder of our service here as we continue to sing And as we give, I pray that we would give with a mindfulness of the provision that you have given us. I pray it wouldn't just be the end of the service. (laughs) I pray that we would be very mindful of the fact that we all sit here very blessed. And as an act of worship, we do what you call us to do. We love you very much. We count it a privilege to be in your presence this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God's greatness is always. It's never not. Um, I was thinking as I, as I was sitting here that um, I want to make sure to reiterate something, even particularly after this sermon, that um, the elders are always approachable to talk with you as you're in and out of these different seasons. You may be thinking after a sermon, I'm not going to talk to him. He's going to tell me quit whining. That's not the case. One of the things I was observing with Moses in that particular chapter is you don't ever see Moses saying, you know what, I'm having a bad day too. Jerks, how, how, you accuse me of murder? I mean, he could have really taken it personally and gone all out of sorts and just told him to, to zip it. Um, but that's not what the leadership is called to. And I want to make sure to reiterate after this, yes, I will probably point you to passages like this. You'll probably be pointed to the greatness of God and not to lose sight of it. But we are approachable in and out of these seasons. And I know personally in the body, as we've met with you, as we sat in your homes, that y'all have had some serious stuff you've gone through. Some families are sitting here saying, no, things are pretty good and pretty easy. Others are like, man, Egypt. I want to encourage y'all to um, just be constantly mindful of God's goodness. Lord, you are very, very good, exceedingly and overwhelmingly good in and out of every season. Um, I thank you for your word that you show us that it's not just our experience that would say that, but every one of your children have experienced it fully. Lord, we look forward to the day where we are in your presence. I pray that you would keep us from, from coming to you for something other than you. And I pray that we would never lose sight of the abundant blessings that we have in Christ. We've been freed to serve. We've been freed to worship accordingly. Lord, you are very, very, very good. We thank you that we have been in your presence this morning. I pray that we would walk in the preached word, that we would consider, uh, that we would engage, continue to engage these uh, scriptures together in our small groups and as families. 
And I pray that in that you would be glorified and that we would be strengthened. Just as they were tested in Exodus 16, I pray that we would also be tested and welcome that to see that we could grow in our faithfulness and grow in our dependence upon you and that we would be a people who are less easily struck down and and frustrated and unseated by circumstances, but that we would be able to persevere through those hard things. Lord, I'm thankful that almost every one of us are probably about to go and eat lunch. I pray that we would enjoy it in your name. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.